Welcome to this Uvula audio production of Smuggler's Reef by John Blaine. Volume 5, Chapter 9, Night Watch Less than a half an hour after arriving at Spindrift, Rick and Scotty were back at Smuggler's Reef. But this time, they were in the Cub, with Scotty operating Rick's speed graphic camera. They took several photos of Creek House, Salt Creek, and Brendan's Marsh from varying altitudes. Then Rick swung in a wide circle, losing altitude, and leveled off only a hundred feet over the marsh. He headed straight for Creek House. Scotty paused in putting the camera in its case and looked at him. Rick winked. I'm going to go see if the Kelsos are home. The cub flashed across Salt Creek, and Rick pulled the control wheel back into his lap. The small plane shot upward at a zoom that just cleared the hotel, and then at the top of the zoom, Rick did a fast wing-over and started back. I know you can fly, Scotty said calmly, but don't try to roll your wheels on that roof. Rick shot across the hotel within five feet of the chimney and dropped so low that his prop wash flattened the reeds in the marsh. Then climbing again, he swung wide and went over Seaford at a legal altitude. He was, even the critical Gus admitted, a safe and sane flyer usually, but the temptation to get back at Carrots Kelso was a little too much for him. High over the town, he turned to Scotty. I didn't see anybody. Now, if you were in the house and a crazy pilot buzzed you twice, what would you do? Run out and look, Scotty said promptly. Uh-huh. Rick was enjoying himself. Whether his scheme worked out or not, he liked it. And if the plane was out of sight, what would you do then? I'd go far away from the house so it wouldn't block my view and go look for it. The farthest you can get away from Creek House is at the end of the pier. Scotty broke into laughter. I hope I'll never have you for an enemy. Well, you bet Carrots doesn't go to the end of the pier. No bets, but I'm hoping. Rick turned inland. When he was out of sight of the town, he lost altitude in a tight spiral over Salt Creek. At 500 feet, he banked around and followed the creek, his throttle wide open. As the cub flashed over Salt Creek Bridge, he put the plane in a shallow dive. Creek House loomed, and he let out a yell of triumph. Carrots Kelso was standing on the end of the pier, looking at the sky. Rick pointed the nose of the cub directly at him, and he held it there. He saw Carrots turn at the noise of the plane, saw his mouth open in a yell, and his eyes pop. Rick hauled the stick back into his lap and kicked left rudder. As the cub spun around, he banged Scotty with his free hand and chortled with glee. 
Carrots, afraid for his life, had gone headlong into the creek. Well, that pays him back for shooting at you, Scotty said with satisfaction. Bet he was more scared than you were. But we still owe him for those fish. Two of the photos they'd taken proved excellent for their purposes. Scotty had taken an interest in developing and printing, and made a 10 by 14 inch enlargement of each. They spent most of Thursday studying them, talking over their various clues endlessly, and waiting for Captain Mike's call. Shortly after supper on Thursday night, he did call, but only to say he had nothing to report and that he hadn't been able to talk to Jim Killian. The fisherman was taking a few days off to go visit his mother in Pennsylvania. Fine time for him to go vacationing, Rick complained, when he might be able to supply some essential information. I've got an idea, Captain. Can you find out what source the automatic light uses for electricity? See if it has its own power plant, or whether there's a cable that runs along the reef. If there is, see if there's a junction box or a switch or anything. Captain Mike promised to have the information the next time he called. They were too restless to sit still and read. Rick had thought about asking his father to help him check the infrared spotlight in the lab, but Hartson Brent was preoccupied with a scientific analysis problem, so Rick decided to check his new invention by actual use. Dismal was the subject. The boys took him for a walk to the back side of the island, where there was no light at all except for dim moonlight. Scotty carried the power supply and a strap over his shoulder, while Rick carried the camera and its attachments. The thing was uncanny, even when its operation was understood. To the naked eye, Dismal was just a vague blur under the trees. But with the infrared searchlight on him, Rick could see him through the telescope as though it was white light. He shot a few feet of film, then took it to the photo lab. He could develop short legs by dipping them into bottles of solution, but full lengths of film would have to go to a New York lab for processing. Projecting the test length cleared up his questions. The camera worked beautifully at distances up to 300 yards. Beyond that, although things could still be seen, the lighting was poor and the definition hazy. He spent more time in the darkroom winding the infrared film on 100-foot rolls and placing them in light-tight canisters while he reloaded the camera with a full spool. When that was done, there was nothing to do but wait and try to read. On Friday night, Scotty glanced up from the leather chair in Rick's room. What time is it? Rick was lying on the bed studying the ceiling and working on the problem of the tower scratches and the shifting current. He looked at his watch. Ten to nine, why? Almost time for the trawlers to be getting back to Seaford. As though I didn't know it. Unless we get a call within the next half hour, we might as well forget it for tonight, too. Scotty went back to his book. Rick resumed staring at the ceiling. It had occurred to him that there was an old wreckers trick, well used in the days of sailing ships. The trick was to extinguish a navigation light though the ships would run aground and be easy prey for the wreckers. And sometimes the wreckers helped out by raising false lights. Now, if the automatic light at the tip of the reef could be cut off, and if a false light were raised on the old tower, well, they just had to talk with Captain Killian. 
Bill Lake thought a shift of current and a patch of mist had been responsible for him losing the light and putting him off course. But what if Smuggler's light had been cut off and a false light lit on the old tower? Rick snapped his fingers. I think I've got it. Scotty looked up. Got what? Just then the phone rang. The boys fell over each other in their haste. Rick got to it first and said a breathless hello. This is Captain Mike speaking. Is that Rick? Yes. Brad just turned up at Salt Creek. I'll be in Meshack waiting to hear about it, boy. And say, the automatic light works by a cable. Cable comes down the pole in front of the creek house fence and goes into a metal box. From there it goes underground to the light. Thanks a million, Rick said exultantly. We'll see you sometime tonight, Captain. He hung up and turned to Scotty. Let's go. They ran down the stairs and almost barged into Mrs. Brandt. Gotta hurry, Mom. Where are you going, Rick? Seaford. We'll take the boat. Don't worry. I don't think we'll be out too late. Mrs. Brandt's eyes were troubled. The boys had told the Brandt something about the events at Seaford. Be careful, you two, she said. We will, Scotty assured her. They had every intention of being extremely careful. Hartz and Brandt, who had been on expeditions with the young men, had every confidence in their ability to look out for themselves. But Mrs. Brandt, like all mothers, had some reservations. As they ran down the stairs to the landing, Scotty asked, What was it you said you had just before the phone rang? I'll tell you all about it when we're underway, Rick returned. And as they sped through the water at over 30 miles an hour towards Seaford, he did so. I think I know how the sea bell was wrecked, but if I'm right, the Kelsos were taking a terrific chance. Well, they seemed like the kind to me who take chances. Scotty peered through the windshield at the dark sea. Behind them, their wake was white and turbulent. Here, this is how I figure. The Kelsos knew there was no sea traffic off Smuggler's Reef, except for the Seaford fleet, because the coastal traffic moves pretty far offshore. They also knew no one goes down the old road past the hotels at night because there's nothing there. And anyway, if a car came, they could see its lights. Rick paused. There's a hole in this theory. In fact, there's a couple of them. I'm guessing that Tom Tyler was the first skipper to get into port a good percentage of the time. If he was, and if they knew that, they could arrange with Brad Marbeck to stick close behind him and give them some sort of signal. If they had glasses on the ships, they could even see a flashlight, couldn't they? I suppose so. And if they were at the very top of Creek House in the attic room, they could see the lights of the ship's coming in before the ship saw Smuggler's Light. What are you driving at? Scotty demanded. Smuggler's Light is small. It's strictly for local navigation. Now suppose one of them was in the attic with glasses, waiting for the ships. Tom Tyler comes over the horizon first. Then Brad Barback right behind him. Brad signals them. Maybe he blinks his mast headlights. By that, they know the next ship's are pretty far behind, and Tom Tyler is in front. The man in the attic signals. They turn off Smuggler's light from the junction box in front of the hotel and light up their own light on the crossbeam of the old tower. 
when Captain Tyler comes over the horizon far enough to see the light, what he sees is Kelso's light. But he doesn't know that. He gives it leeway as usual. He's used to passing it close because there's plenty of water. Then, when he's within a short distance of it, the light goes out. He keeps on course, thinking, well, something has happened to the light. And then he piles up on the reef. And as he piles up on the reef, the real light comes back on, Scotty exclaimed. Yes, exactly, said Rick excitedly. And the man with the light in the tower just removes it, gets down, and runs for Creek House before the men of the sea bell have even picked themselves up. Well, that makes sense, Scotty agreed. And how? Of course, Tom Tyler knows he's been tricked the minute he hits, and he knows why. So does Brad Marbeck, but he's in on it. Bill Lake, who's pretty far behind, thinks the shift in the light is due to a patch of mist and a strong current. What about Captain Killian? He was closer to the light. That's why it's important to get his story, Rick said. His eyes had been scanning the dark coastline ceaselessly. Now, picking up the start of Brenton's marsh, he turned the wheel and swung out to sea. Their study of the photos had convinced them that the best way to approach Creek House was from the rear. To do that, they had to pass far enough out at sea so that their engine noise would not be noticeable and attract the attention of the Kelsos. Rick took a quick look around and saw no other boat lights. He leaned forward and snapped off their own. In a few moments, they saw the lights of Creek House and Smuggler's Light. When they were well past it, Rick turned inshore, throttled down to make as little noise as possible. There was a short dock in front of the abandoned Sandy Shores Hotel. He gauged distance carefully in the dim light and let his momentum carry him to it. Scotty jumped out and made the bow fast while Rick cut the engine completely and hurried to secure the stern. In a moment, they were on the dock together, looking toward Creek House. Let's go, Rick whispered. They made their way as noiselessly as possible behind the old hotel, then picked a careful path through the accumulated junk past the rears of the Seagirt, the Atlantic View, and the Shore Mansions. Twice they had to climb rusted fences, and Rick was grateful that they had put on old clothes. Presently they were against the Creek House fence. He touched Scotty's arm and gestured, then led the way toward the place where the fence stopped at the marsh. They had planned the adventure up to the end of the fence. After that they would have to take advantage of whatever was offered. They hadn't seen in the photograph that the fence extended into the marsh for a short distance. Rick's first inkling of the fact came when one foot sank into muck above his shoe top. He let out a soft exclamation and then pulled his foot free. It made a sighing, sucking sound. The boys held a whispered conversation and decided there was nothing for it but to continue. Rick stepped forward, searching with his foot for firmer ground. Now and then he found a hummock, but there were times when he sank to his knees in the clinging goo. Fortunately, there were only a few feet of swamp to navigate. He reached the end of the fence and stopped, peering around it. There were lights on the pier, and the albatross was tied up to it, but the lights were too dim to illuminate anything more than a few yards away. He crouched and moved over a little, making room for Scotty. 
Together they surveyed the terrain. We can't see much from here, Scotty said, lips against Rick's ear. We're going to have to get closer. Rick nodded. He motioned along the fence, indicating that they should follow it. Then he took the lead again. In a dozen muddy steps, they were out of the marshland and onto dry ground again. But Rick had to exercise utmost caution because there was a litter of dried junk that crackled underfoot. He picked his way carefully, hardly daring to breathe aloud. Once he froze and felt Scotty tense behind him, Brad Marbach and Red Kelso walked from the hotel to the pier and stood looking upstream. Their backs were to Rick and Scotty. Rick started moving again. There were no lights in the hotel on the fence side. He wanted to reach the safe darkness of that area before planning their next move. As he went, he wondered where Carrots was and what had happened to Brad's crew. They reached the dark space between the hotel and the fence without incident, and Rick straightened up with a little breath of relief. Now what? He reviewed the photo of the hotel grounds in his mind. Scotty tugged his sleeve and pointed. Rick looked up and saw that a window was open on the first floor. The room behind it was dark. For a second he was tempted and then shook his head. Going into the hotel was dangerous, even though they probably could make their way to an upper floor and have an unobstructed view from a window. They were trapped inside, though. He didn't even like the thought of that. At least their retreat was open while they were out of doors. The top of the fence was within reach if they jumped. They could swing over it and run. Once outside the fence, the Kelsos would have a hard time catching up with them. He remembered the front of the hotel and part of the area on the creek side contained shrubs and relics of the original landscaping. The shrubs would give them plenty of cover. He touched Scotty and motioned. Then he started around the front of the hotel, crossing the driveway which led into the grounds through a gate, closed now, looking like part of the fence. The front of the hotel was dark. Swiftly he went past the porch, moving through the shrubbery with extreme caution. He gained the corner nearest the creek safely, Scotty behind him. When he peered around, he had a good view of the dock. Red Kelso and Brad Marbeck were still talking. No one else was in sight. Somewhere inside, a door banged. Rick stiffened. That had to be Carrots or one of the crew. He moved forward, spotting a hedge that had marked the edge of the garden. If they crouched behind that, they would have an unobstructed view. He dodged a shrub and reached the hedge. It was just waist high. He sank to his knees and parted the twigs, searching for a good view through them. Beside him, Scotty knelt and did the same. He put his mouth close to Scotty's ear. This is a good place, he whispered. Yeah, it's a fine place, a loud voice said behind them. Now get up, both of you. Rick whirled and his heart stopped. He looked straight across the front sight of a rifle into the grinning face of Carrots Kelso. Chapter 10 Captured I figured it was time for another look around, Carrots said. 
So I came out here by the side door, went around the back, and up the side by the fence. Then I crossed over by the front. And just as I got to the corner, who did I see but our two wise guy pails? He poked the rifle into Rick's back by way of emphasis. Red Kelso and Brad Marbeck looked at the two boys and then at each other. Marbeck looked up the creek nervously. Better get him inside under cover, he said. Jimmy, take him into the cabin. Rick was seething inwardly, but he gave no sign. He was angry with himself. He should have known there'd be a guard. He walked down the pier, Scotty at his side, the others following. At Kara's direction, he climbed over the side of the trawler and went into the small cabin aft of the wheelhouse. Red Kelso gestured toward a built-in bunk. Sit down, both of you. He went to the single window and slid the curtains shut. Carrots took up a position in the corner from which he could cover the two boys. Brad Marbeck pushed into the cabin and closed the door behind him. For a dozen heartbeats, there was silence. Then Red Kelso broke it. What now? He asked heavily. We got him. What do we do with him? Rick spoke up with much more boldness than he felt. Nothing. Half a dozen people know we came here. Marbeck and Kelso exchanged glances. We can't just let him go, Carrot said. His glance at Rick was vindictive. This is the joker that dove at me in his airplane. I owe him something for that. Be quiet, Jimmy, Red Kelso said. We got to think about this. There was a hail from outside. Marbeck started. Red, come outside. Jimmy, watch these two. Karras lifted the rifle a little. The two older men went out and closed the door. Rick listened carefully. He thought he could hear oars. Scotty spoke up. You're a good shot with that thing. Rick says you put two shots right together over his head. I should have picked him off, Karras snarled. I ought to put a shot in his head right now for making me jump off that dock. Hey, that evened us up, Rick said quietly. You dumped fish on us. Karras grinned his satisfaction. You damn well tootin' I did, and that ain't all I'm gonna do to you either. Don't be too sure, Scotty said. Karras' thin lips tightened. You got warned twice. Twice. What happens to you is on your own head. The door banged open and Red Kelso and Brad Marbeck came in again. For some reason they seemed in better spirits. Marbeck was grinning. Kelso stood before the two boys, his seaweed-green eyes surveying them coldly. Okay, talk. What did you want in here? Rick and Scotty remained silent. Don't make me beat it out of you, Kelso warned. Rick thought quickly, jerked his thumb at Carrots. You can blame him. First he dumped a half a ton of Manhattan on us. Then he took a shot at me while I was climbing the old tower. Why were you climbing the tower? Marbeck demanded quickly. Rick shrugged nonchalantly, he hoped. Why does anybody climb a tower? Just doing it for fun. Carrot snorted. Nuts! Then why didn't you go all the way to the top? 
Red Kelso's eyes swiveled from his son to the boys. Let's cut the comedy, he snapped. Jimmy had nothing to do with you coming here. Now give us a straight story or you're going to suffer for it. Rick's mind was working at top speed. He certainly couldn't tell them everything, but he might be able to stall. You warned us. Twice. Anyway, we thought it was you. Then your son just admitted it. He grinned at Kelso. We had to find out why you were warning us, didn't we? Red looked at Carrots, then at Brad. I told you it was a mistake. Try warning them off. All right. Did you find out why we warned you? We didn't have time, Scotty pointed out. We just arrived and we got caught. Brad Marbeck's voice was cold. Do you think my coming here is funny? Scotty's reply was equally cold. You're not trying to kid anybody that you tie up at this pier before unloading your fish just because you want to be sociable, are you? Marbeck took a step forward. Red Kelso's hand on his shoulder restrained him. Rick held his breath, wondering if Scotty had gone too far. Okay, you snoopers, Red said. You're going to take a nice, long look around, see? You're going to do exactly what we say. You're going to find out for yourselves what's going on here. Now, how do you like that? Fine, Rick said feebly. There doesn't seem to be anything else to say. Start at the house, Brad growled. Get going. On deck, Rick took a quick look around. Nothing had changed, nor was anybody in sight. With Carrot's rifle at their backs, he and Scotty marched to the side door of the hotel. Inside, Red Kelso pointed at another door. Open it and go downstairs. Step on it. We haven't got all night. Rick caught his breath. Why were they forcing him into the cellar? A little fearfully, he went down the stairs as Red snapped on the lights. At the bottom of the steps, the three faced them. Start looking, Brad commanded. Go on, stick your noses in every corner. Get busy. He gave Scotty a shove that sent him staggering in the direction of the coal cellars. Then Red Kelso gave Rick a hard push that landed him on his knees. The boy stood up again and looked around him uncertainly. What do you want us to do? Look, Red snapped. That's what you came for. Look in every blasted corner until you're satisfied there's nothing more to look for. Now get going. And Rick and Scotty looked. Even though they knew now that nothing would be found in the old house, they had no choice. With the three hovering over them, they searched in corners, under stairs, and in bins. They sounded walls, wrapped floors. As they passed through the kitchen, Four men were playing cars, evidently members of Brad's crew. They inspected the butler's pantry and even the refrigerator. Then they were pushed on through the other first-floor rooms and then up the stairs. Rick was tired of the whole affair, but every time he hesitated, Brad or Red gave him a headlong shove that kept him moving, and always Carrots was there with the rifle. When there were no bulbs in the rooms, a flashlight that Red produced provided illumination. Room by tiresome room, they worked their way up to the attic. From the attic, they were run down the stairs again and out onto the grounds and forced to cover every inch of land. 
They were then taken to the garage boathouse and made to work their way through what had been the servants' quarters. Downstairs, they inspected the only car, and Rick automatically made a mental note of the make and the New York license number. Then they looked under the seats and into the rope locker of a motor whaleboat that was the only craft in the boathouse, and they were forced to crawl under the boathouse where it rested on piles. Now, Brad Marbeck said grimly, let's take a look at the trawler. Do we have to? We know you wouldn't make us look if there was anything to be seen, Scotty said wearily. Brad's big hand landed in the middle of his back, smashing him toward the dock. March, he commanded. The tiresome routine started again. Through the wheelhouse and cabin and galley and engine house, rope and gear lockers, they hunted, picking up accumulated layers of dirt and grease along the way, until finally only the huge fish holes were left. Rick looked into the forward one and thought, Oh, no. He started to protest, but Brad's open hand caught him on the side of the face. Dig, the skipper commanded. You asked for it. Dig. And dig they did, through tons of stinking Manhattan and cold ice, until they choked and their mouths felt full of scales. Once or twice they protested, but there was always big Brad Marbeck ready to strike out, and carrots and red kelso backing him up. An eternity later, they clawed their way up the pile of fish in the last hold. Rick took a deep breath of clean air. Anything else? he asked. Carrot stepped forward. You poor jokers got dirty, he said with false concern. You need a bath. He pointed to the end of the dock. Go! Jump! His rifle lifted menacingly. That, at least, was no hardship. Rick walked to the end of the dock and dropped into the water, savoring its cool cleanliness. Scotty was right beside him. Overhead, the three waited, and Kara's rifle was still on them. Back to the bank, he commanded. Rick and Scotty swam, clambering up on shore, and stood waiting. They were herded like sheep to the front gate. Red Kelso produced a key and the gate swung open. You had your look. You came to spy and we helped you out. Now you know there's nothing wrong here. We warned you because we didn't like you. See, that's all. Now get going and don't ever come back. Or we'll work you over so you'll never be the same again. Now get out. They were shoved violently forward and landed sprawling on the hard macadam road. Behind them, the gate slammed shut, and as they got to their feet and looked at each other ruefully, the sound of Carrot's raucous laughter was like salt on raw flesh. Chapter 11 The Hearing you two certainly got your nerve going back to Seafoot after that, Jerry Webster said. We'll stay away from the Kelsos and Brad Marbeck. Don't worry about it, Rick assured him. But we're not giving up, are we, Scotty? Not on your life, Scotty replied flatly. 
Jerry's car bounced over Salt Creek Bridge and sped toward the Seaford turnoff. The boys had phoned him early in the morning and found he had learned about Tom Tyler's hearing during his routine phone calls to the Seaford authorities and that he was going down to cover it. They had met him at the Whiteside dock and on the way down had brought him up to date on their part of the case, including their humiliating experience the night before. So your theories about smuggling must be wrong. Jerry said. Otherwise, you would have found something. I'm not convinced of that, Rick argued. It's still the only answer that fits. Where were the smuggled goods? We could have gotten there too late, Scotty reminded him. If it was a small shipment, it could have been unloaded and disposed of before we even showed up. Disposed of? How? Jerry wanted to know. Rick recalled that he had heard the sound of oars while in the cabin. Red and Brad had rushed out right away, too, after hearing a hail. They might have taken the stuff up the creek, he mused. They might even have had a truck waiting at the bridge. There's not much traffic, so it wouldn't be too great a risk. And even if a car came along, they could pretend the truck was changing a tire or something until it passed. Well, that's reasonable, Jerry admitted. Did you talk it over with Captain Mike? Rick grinned ruefully at the memory of the two soaked, bedraggled, filthy specimens who had knocked on Captain Mike's door last night. We were in no mood to even think about it. But we did find out one thing. Captain Mike said it would be easy for anybody to disconnect Smuggler's Light and then reconnect it. All they would need would be an insulated screwdriver. That's not all, Scotty added. He said Tom Tyler was the first one back from the fishing grounds eight times out of ten, because the Sea Bell was the fastest boat in the fleet and the best handled. The more Rick thought about it, the more he was convinced that his theory of the wrecking of the trawler would hold water. Captain Mike had plugged up another hole, too. Rick had wondered about the backside of the light. He noticed there was a red sector on the town side, a common method of construction on lights of that sort. On Captain Mike's chart, Shaded areas showed how the light worked. It was visible from the seaside in an arc of 180 degrees, but it was dark in the quadrant toward the marsh and red in the quadrant toward the town. But warehouses and pier sheds blocked off the light from almost all of the town except for Million Dollar Row. And since the red portion would be out for only a short time, it was long odds against anybody noticing it or investigating if they did. Pretty sound, Rick said. Only I wonder if we'll ever be able to prove it. Not in time for this morning's hearing, that's for sure, Scotty commented. Maybe Captain Killian will have something to say, if he ever gets back. Captain Mike had tried unsuccessfully last night to see Jim Killian. He was still visiting his mother. Jerry's car rolled down the main street of Seaford toward the town hall. Rick could see that an unusual number of cars were lined up along the curbs. The hearing was attracting a great deal of interest, as could have been expected. He wondered if the Kelsos would be there. Jerry pulled into a convenient parking space. As they got out, he asked Rick, You got your camera? Rick held it up. We've got our press cards, too. That makes us legal spectators for a change. For a change is right. Lead the way, Jerry. The hearing room was on the second floor. Jerry pushed his way through the crowd 
in the corridor with Rick and Scotty following and found the entrance. A police officer stopped them at the door, then permitted them to enter once they showed their press cards. Rick wondered if the hearing would be closed to the public. When he got inside, he saw that every seat was taken. He recognized a face here and there, including that of Bill Lake. The others he recognized were fishermen he had seen during his trip to the pier with Captain Mike. Evidently, some of them were taking the day off because of the hearing. The room was actually a small courtroom. Like most courtrooms, it had a low fence dividing the spectators from the participants. On a table inside the fence, Tom Tyler was seated with four other men. Rick guessed from their appearances that they were members of his crew. One had an arm in a sling, and he remembered Captain Mike had said the wreck had caused one broken arm. Jerry spoke to a man who seemed to be someone of authority, and they were directed to seats in the front row. Across the aisle, Rick saw Mrs. Tyler and the little girl who had been with her on the first night. The captain's wife looked pale, but she seemed composed. Then he swished his glance to the captain himself. Tom Tyler seemed thinner in the few days since the wreck of his ship. He stared at the table before him, seemingly oblivious to the murmur of voices in the room. Rick felt compassion for the man. If the theory proved correct, Tom Tyler was the victim of unscrupulous men who had wrecked his ship deliberately just to remove danger from their path. He speculated about what might have caused the actual decision to wreck the sea bell. There was only one sensible conclusion. Captain Tyler must have used the trawler to spy on Brad Marbeck. Wrecking the ship would serve a double purpose. It would remove the possibility of further spying on Brad, and it would warn Tyler that the smugglers meant business. After that, simply telling him that his family would suffer if he kept on would strike home. Until the wreck, he probably had been inclined to treat Kelso's warning rather lightly. A door opened to the left of the judge's rostrum, and three men came out. One was a Coast Guard commander, and the other two were civilians. A whisper from Jerry informed Rick that they were officers of the United States Maritime Commission. Rick turned to see if the Kelsos or Brad Marbeck were in the room. He was curious about Captain Mike, too. While he was searching the rows of faces, the procedure started. A clerk got up and announced something about the hearing being held before the duly authorized Board of Inquiry in the case of the wrecking and smuggler's reef of the motor vessel Seabell of so many tons and such and such a registry number. Thomas Lee Tyler, master, holding license numbers, so-and-so. Jerry nudged Rick and pointed to the camera. Rick nodded and inserted a flashbulb. He caught the clerk's eye and held up the camera. The clerk frowned and then motioned him to come inside the rail. Rick did so and snapped a picture of the tribunal. Then he turned to get a photo of Tom Tyler and the men at his table. With the audience in the background, he looked at Jerry. The young reporter nodded, indicating that two pictures would be enough. Rick resumed his seat. The middleman on the platform leaned over and asked, Who is representing Captain Tyler? Tyler stood up. No one, sir. A murmur ran through the courtroom. Captain, do you mean you have come into this hearing without counsel? Sir, I'm pleading guilty to whatever the charge is. I don't need a lawyer for that. 
Tyler sat down again. There was whispered consultation among the three on the bench. Then the spokesman leaned forward again. Captain, as I understand the facts presented by the officers who investigated, if you plead guilty, you will, in effect, state that you deliberately wrecked your ship. If you so state, your insurance company will have no recourse but to ask for your arrest on a charge of baritary. Do you understand that? If that's the way it is, sir, I guess that's the way it is. I'm pleading guilty. The murmur in the courtroom rose. Rick leaned over to Jerry. He's scared stiff. He has to be to be taking this lying down. But if the Kelsos had threatened Mrs. Tyler and their little girl, there wasn't much else he could do. Wrecking the trawler had shown him they were capable of carrying out a threat. Rick was glad he had had presence of mind the night before to say that other people knew that he and Scotty were going to Creek House. He was sure that if the Kelsos and Brad thought that no one else knew, their fate would have been much different. A hand fell on his shoulder. He looked up into the face of the officer who had been at the door. Are you Rick Brett? He nodded. Captain Mike is outside. He says it's urgent. He wants you and Don Scott. We'll come right away, Rick said. He leaned over and explained to Jerry. We'll meet you outside. Come on, Scotty. As quietly as possible, he and Scotty left the room just as the spokesman for the board declared that the hearing would proceed. Captain Mike was on the steps in front of the town hall. His weathered face lit up at the sight of the boys, and he greeted them with a note of worry in his voice. Come on down to the sidewalk, out of earshot of these folks, he said in a low tone. They followed him to a place where the crowd thinned out, and then Rick asked, What's the matter, Captain? Anything important come up? Important. I'll say it's important. Captain Mike leaned forward. Jim Killian has disappeared. <laughs>